0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on August 1st, 2018, providing a deeper dive on the mechanics of the new BEAT provisions and selected issues. The panelists for the webcast were Alex Felashko, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues, specifically value chain transformation, Catherine O'Brien, a PwC tax principal focusing on transfer pricing issues. Christy Turgeon, a PwC tax principal focusing on accounting method issues. And Orrin Penn, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues. This excerpt from our Tax Reform Readiness webcast consists of a general discussion among the panelists providing a quick recap of the fundamental architecture of the BEAT provision and offer some common themes and observations that are beginning to emerge since enactment. Have a listen.
1: So with that, Warren, would you like to start us off with just a basic recap of the architecture and we'll dive into some of these specific elements.
2: Sure, we'll just spend just a couple minutes on how the BEAT works on a simplified high level. Very quick refresher, 59 Cap A is the BEAT provision. It basically operates as a minimum tax on generally speaking USC corporations that meet a definition of what's called an applicable taxpayer and the the min tax is designed to um, operate as uh, an adjustment to the tax the regular taxable income of the taxpayer adjusting for things um, like uh, base erosion payments to foreign related parties as well as a percentage of NOL carryovers. Uh, that in effect represent base erosion amounts as well. It's a complicated uh, formula, it's a multi-step formula you take, but ultimately the min tax is keyed off of what's called a base erosion minimum tax ta- base erosion minimum tax amount, uh, and you, car- you, you compare two different amounts. You take a percentage of what's called modified taxable income, For most years, most taxpayers, the percentage is 10%. 5% for the first year floats up to 12.5% for years after 2025. But most cases, we're talking about 10% of modified taxable income. Modified taxable income is essentially adjusting uh, the regular taxable income for these base erosion uh, amounts. Um, And you take that, that amount and compare it against what the taxpayer's regular tax liability is, less certain credits like foreign tax credits. And so if the 10% modified taxable amount is higher than the regular tax amount, that excess is the beat tax, is the, is the top-up tax. Um, and so this is a year-by-year year snapshot calculation unlike other uh, code provisions. There's no carryovers, you just do the calculation. Um, and, and really the questions are, there's two key provisions. Number one, what is an applicable taxpayer that tells you whether you're in the provisions? And second, what is modified taxable income because that tells you how to do the beat calculation? Um, and, and you apply these definitions again on annual basis. Um, an applicable taxpayer, generally speaking, is a C Corp, typically US C Corp, that meets a gross receipts and a base erosion threshold. The gross receipts test is looking at a prior three-year tax period to see whether on average you have gross receipts in excess of 500 million, so larger taxpayers. Uh, The base erosion percentage is is looking to see whether your base erosion amounts represent a sufficient percentage of your overall deductions. It's set at 3% for most taxpayers. Some industries, like banks, uh, have a somewhat lower threshold at 2%. So that's one key definition. Modified taxable income is another key definition. It basically is taking regular taxable income and adjusting it uh, and determining it without regard to base erosion tax benefits for base erosion payments as well as um, uh, the base erosion percentage of NOL carryovers. And there's some debate over how you make that that calculation. Do you add it back to from regular to taxable right. income or do you recompute without those uh, amounts um, but we we'll, for purposes of this webcast, we'll assume that will be
1: addressed at some point. But we'll, we'll take a simpler and the difference ad- ad- that can that be approach. quite dramatic between those two approaches. Very much so. Yeah. In um, and so this modified taxable income concept, Warren, like what I've seen so far is the higher that number, the higher the likelihood. If you're to the extent you're applicable tax pay, your applicable taxpayer base, eroding payments, the higher you beat liability would be. So that's the Correct. one number that just keeps jumping up for And
2: plus company. the theme here is that you know to the extent the taxpayer. has their profits down for regular tax purposes, the beat is going to hit them harder. And unlike other provisions like 163J, there's really no relief valve. There's no carryover.
1: So it is what it is for any particular year. If you're hit and your profits are down, typically you're going to be hit hard. That's a great point. What about, on on the following page, I think we have some pointers on uh, base eroding payments. Can you speak some to, like, which are or are not uh, base eroding payments?
2: Yeah, it's a very broad category of what is a base erosion payment. It's basically
1: anything that's
2: deductible, um, paid or accrued to a foreign related party that's considered a deduction, and that's why we have some specialists here to tell us what's a deduction and what is not a deduction. Um, But if it is a deduction, it's thrown into the base erosion and B calculation. Uh, there's other categories as well that's probably the broadest category Um, so that's in but there are some outs so to speak depending on uh, what type of payment we're talking about so if it's not a deduction but it's a reduction from gross receipts cost of goods sold or amounts capitalized in inventory such as under 263 cap a and other provisions it's technically not a deduction it could be out Um, if, if it's if the arrangement is technically does not give rise to income or deductions, like certain pass-through amounts, which we'll be talking about on this webcast, that also if it's, ha- if it's properly characterized that way, is, could also be out of beat. Um, we'll talk about on the transfer pricing side, certain statutory exceptions for intercompany services that are eligible for the cost uh, method exception under the 42 regulations, uh, and some of the issues that are still out there around that, mm-hmm. um, and there's also a statutory exception for certain qualified derivative payments, but we'll be focusing on some of these first
1: uh, few categories in terms of the issues we're seeing popping up around BEAT. That's great, Oren. And, um, and maybe to recap again, um, what we're talking about here, these are not really formal opinions of use of the firm. It's really our discussion, you know, thoughts, observations, and there's obviously a lot of still unopen, un- unanswered questions. Uh, uncertainties, you know, there's a whole big question about what sort of guidance we'll get. So with all that in mind, um, or maybe a really quick computational example, and then we can start diving into some of these.
2: Yeah, just conceptually, this is a very simple example. Um, in reality, the, the the bead examples and calculations we're seeing are much more complicated, but just to illustrate what we just discussed take a foreign parent company it has a u.s subsidiary the u.s sub is the technical taxpayer for beat purposes that's who we look at so the u.s sub is earning revenue from third-party customers in the u.s it has some operating expenses it purchases product from its foreign parent as cost of goods sold not as deductions but it also has what we would consider to be base eroding payments interest royalties could be service fees um, and so the way this works, let's assume this taxpayer does the, uh, runs the threshold calculation. So their gross receipts are high enough and their base erosion percentage, their $300 of base eroding payments is higher than 3% of total deductions. In this case, it's much higher than that. Then the taxpayer, once they hit those thresholds to be an applicable taxpayer, have to run the cal. Mm-hmm. And so it's a two-step cal you first take your percentage 10% of modified taxable income so if we take an add-back approach regular taxable income in this example is a hundred and you have three hundred dollars of base eroding payments you add that back to get to four hundred of modified taxable income apply 10 percent to that uh, that gives you forty as your initial number that you're going to compare against taxpayer in this case has regular tax of twenty one so since forty uh, is greater than 21 the difference 19 is your top-up tax is your B tax yep. And and so it's effectively operating to Apply a top-up tax even though in this case The the payments might be going to a foreign jurisdiction that has a very high tax rate You know, there's no relief from the from the B tax if that happens um, This also be, the B tax will apply even though these are arm's-length payments and um, that are accepted under under international standards. And it could also apply if this were a payment to uh, a CFC of a U.S. company that was picked up under subpart F. So there might be a U.S. pickup, a U.S. tax, but still on
1: the recipient side, but the B-tax on the payor side could still apply. Thanks, Orient. So, again, as you see here, and, and you can study this calc in, in some more detail, the example here shows an effective tax rate of 40%, and that's certainly not uncommon for a lot of the companies we work with that, that are in the soup. So, with that being the backdrop, what, what do you see kind of surprises people the most? Like, what's been the kinds of things that people are really caught by surprise as they start evaluating how it applies to
3: well, I, I just think some of the some of the issues where we still have some uh, uncertainty. For example, um, we'll get to it later, but is a payment that is settling up of a profit split subject to beat? Um, and you know, certainly, I think the services industry is surprised at how hard they're hit relative to the widget world yeah. where they're you're buying and selling product. I, I think that's. I have
4: a similar experience. Most people are surprised that cost of goods sold is so narrow. We'll we'll talk about that a little more, but it really is just products. And so services, licenses, leasing, where maybe they're presentationally cost of goods sold on financial statements are really not cost of goods sold.
2: Yeah, Warren? I would say it's been surprising how many pieces of the statute, are still open for interpretation. Not even kind of okay. narrow issues. I'm talking broad issues in terms of how you apply the calculation to, to right. consolidated yep. versus
1: non-consolidated yep. groups.
2: All issues across the board. Very
1: surprising. Yeah, and I find I worked a lot with you know operating model sort of matters, and I find it surprising how many just regular commercial transactions are caught by this. Okay. It's just the, the number of companies affected was really immense. So with that. Um, we started teeing this up, uh, but co- what are the common trends? And uh, maybe Catherine, starting with you, um, what are you seeing from the industry impact perspective?
3: Well, I think we touched a little bit on it um, already, but but it is it is to whom is this applicable, and sort of how hard are certain industries hit? Um, and and for example, we've got the services industry, the leasing, but uh, you know industry. Um, where they don 't have a cost of goods sold exception, and therefore any payment that they 're making is subject to beat should they meet the other requirements for application of the beat provision so that um, whether that 's intentionally yeah, sort of to operate that way or it was incidental in, in any event, I think there 's um, kind of surprise and, and conversations that are ongoing with regard to that I think it 's also the financial services sector we have. Um, discovered that the inbounds in the financial services sector are quite heavily hit. Um, outbounds it, again depends on how you define a lot of these um, open issues, mm-hmm. um, but but they um, widely use the profit split methodology. And so, to the extent that any settlement under a profit split is treated as a beat payment, that's a big deal. And whether that's consistent with policy again is is something that I think remains to be seen, and sort of one other is is the health in, industry or anybody who's got maybe IP owned here in the U.S. where R and D is taking place offshore, those payments for R and D wouldn't be subject to some of the exceptions that are otherwise found in in the um, statute, and so. We've certainly
1: seen that with our pharmaceuticals and contract right. research organizations where the clinical trials are typically done outside the US. That's right. Um, so that's great. That's from the industry standpoint. Um, the second sort of common trend here is impact on common operating models. You know, what I see is, and you mentioned you know, obviously services companies seem to be disproportionately hit by this, impacted by this, but even the products companies and sort of counterintuitive, but companies that may have older IP owned in the U.S., but just because of their business model, they tend to do a lot of development, innovation globally outside the U.S., mm-hmm. finding themselves being subject to beat because of those compensating payments and not subject to SCM exception, right? Um, other common models, and we'll give some examples later on about how some of these rules apply, but very, very common for inbounds and outbounds just across industry spectrum to settle in a company payments using sort of a clearinghouse or clearing account. Mm-hmm. that's attached to a general ledger of a U.S. corporation. It seems to put them at least There's a big question whether those payments coming in going out, in fact, remittances that are quad by beat. Um, another example we'll, we'll unpack a little bit is uh, global contracting models, which mm-hmm. is very, very common in a number of industries. And how do you deal with those? And again, where, say, U.S. company contracts globally, but then compensates affiliates around the world for provision of services. So some really, really common business models which... We're finding a lot of our clients in just because that's where the industry evolved and sort of that's the world we live in, but nevertheless is being quiet. Um, Christy, what about you from the character and sort of characterization? I
4: I think um, we've definitely seen a lot of activity and questions and concerns with clients that are getting hit with beat that didn't anticipate Mm -hmm. it and are very interested in doing what they can to get out. And I think, as I mentioned, the first question that usually comes to me is, am I in this cost of good sold exception? Um, and there are some clients that clearly are in cost of goods sold, and then how much can you include in cost of goods sold? And we'll talk about that. There yep. is some wiggle room to maybe include more costs than currently mm-hmm. clients are including. Yep. Um, if you're not in cost of goods sold, which is a lot of who we're finding are people that are concerned about, beat, um, like the licensing or leases or uh, you know intangibles uh, where you don't fit in cost of goods sold, then the companies are looking at what other options do you have Possibly so that the payment is not a deduction, but just a pass-through cost. Mm-hmm. and there's a lot of theories, and we'll explore some later um, that if you're an agent, you're a conduit, you're just getting cost as a reimbursement, you're sharing revenue, you know all of these theories which all go into do you have an accession to wealth under section 61 they're all very fact specific um, and may require you know you to relook at your contracts, but um, that's generally what we're spending a lot of time on.
1: No. Yep. Or what about what trend have you seen?
2: Yeah, on the inbound side, it's it's across all the industries. So a lot of the same issues we're going to be talking about yeah. apply just based on their operating models. Um, they tend to use debt, um, and so they're looking to see how to shift intercompany to external debt for B purposes. Yeah. Um, uh, the on the outbound side, we're, we're going to be talking about some interaction pr- uh, issues with other provisions, but I think. Most people kind of initially felt when the BEAT statute came out that this was going to be targeted primarily at inbounds, Uh, but now when we're seeing the interactive effects, I think the U.S. multinationals have woken up and now see there's some real detrimental impacts just based on how the statute works for their overseas structures.
1: And and I see maybe just to add to this, and I think you have a great example right after this to illustrate, that's just the point you were making, but from the, um, Another trend I see just the whole regulatory un- uncertainty around a lot of these provisions had caused a lot of companies, at least in the first half of the year, just to be paralyzed with fear, right? And so a lot of a lot of companies we work with maybe crunched the numbers and done some initial diligence just to understand sort of they're in the soup. They have to deal with this, but really are worried about starting to execute on the plan or take some action just in the absence mm-hmm. of clarity. And so, the one thing, and I think toward the end, or, and you'll talk a little bit about just the regulatory outlook. Yep. You know, what do we expe- expect will happen in the second half of the year now? So, with that,
3: well, I'm actually finding that some of our clients are really having difficulty with reconciling the potential application with the policy, the underlying policy. And so, it, it seems to have an application that far exceeds. Yes. What the policy is?
2: Yeah, I mean, you you think of it as a, it's a, it 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 has many different policies behind it, some that don't reconcile with each other. So the idea that it's a minimum tax, flat out, can explain away some effects that don't seem to be consistent with other policy uh, interests, like anti-base erosion provisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the UK's uh, diverted profits tax. Could say maybe that's more tailored because it was designed to focus on base erosion amounts, but had filters around arms length payments and how much tax was paid on the other side. We don't that beat is totally different, mm. even different than a regular minimum tax mm. where there was carryover effects. So it's probably the newest thing we've seen in this area and And one of the questions to so your question is how much does Treasury and IRS think that they have the authority to address? Mm-hmm. based on how the statute was written. Some of it might be interpretive, some of
1: it this is the architecture. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see. Yep. Um, Orin, do you want to give like this really good, I think, colorful example yeah. on the interaction between BEAT and other provisions?
2: Yeah, th- this is a good one in terms of how other provisions, you may have thought you had an answer, but then when you go back and do your B calculation, you wake up and realize that that's not the answer. So. You know as part of tax reform there were some special provisions around guilty income um, uh, that provided a special deduction uh, foreign tax credits against it and so in this example you've got a taxpayer that has both uh, guilty and non guilty income and when they do their regular tax calculation um, for guilty purposes they run through the regular Calculation, and we're not going to get into all the nuances because there's even open issues under guilty itself, of course, like expense allocation. Um, but let's assume that taxpayer does its guilty calculation and determines that there's no it's the, the income is sufficiently high taxed abroad so that they can offset fully the any any US tax on the guilty income would be fully offset by foreign tax credits. So zero. U.S. tax liability on the guilty income, which just leaves the taxpayer paying uh, the 21% rate on whatever's left over. In this case, it's $100. So they pay $21 on, for regular tax purposes. Let's again assume the, the, ta- the U.S. taxpayer meets the thresholds, now has to run the, bil- the B calculation. The problem with the way the statute's drafted. Yeah is it does not, when you're doing the comparison, the 10% of modified taxable income against regular tax, they back out credits like foreign tax credits, which means when you're doing the B calculation, you don't get the benefit of those foreign tax credits when you're figuring out what your top-up tax is. So on, on the last column here, when you're doing the B calculation, you're basically throwing all of the taxable income back in, including the guilty income. We're assuming we're doing add back approach. In this case, we've got $100 of base erosion tax benefits, so we add that back to come to a modified taxable income number of 550. You take 50% of that; that's 55, and you compare that against the regular tax of 21. You've got a beat tax, Mm -hmm. right? Of $34. That $34 is 99% (coughs) related to the basically a top up tax on the guilty income that. Was fully offset for, with credits for regular tax purposes, but no offset with credits for beat purposes. So some, a lot of U.S. multinationals that are going to be doing their guilty calculations and may find,
1: you know, that they, and can, almost every U.S. MNC has guilty. It's going right? to have guilty. Supplies, so yeah.
2: And they think they have an answer under yep. guilty. They're going to many are finding out that we're going to have to run a second filter and determine we're going to have a top-up tax yep. on our guilty income. That that was a big surprise.
1: Was it intended? Did they think mm-hmm. about it? You know, And back a, to your point about it's not, B, it's just an inbound tax. Well, U.S. outbounds can actually fare a lot worse because of this effect.
2: Exactly. In fact, we're getting many more questions yep. from U.S. multinationals in light of some of these interactive yep. effects. Yep. That's great. Thank you, Aaron.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.